0: Good morning, church. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. And on behalf of all of us here at West Hills, uh, if you're new, especially, we want to welcome you. We're so uh, encouraged and glad that you're here with us. We pray that you'll be blessed uh, by our time together here this morning. Uh, this morning at West Hills, we are kicking off, as Missy said, uh, for the first time ever that I'm aware of um, an entire week's. Worth of serving and meeting needs in our community together uh, that we're calling Serve Week. And uh, this idea actually grew out of our youth camp experience last year uh, when our students had spent a week up in Wheaton, Illinois, and they had a blast um, packing meals to send overseas to help feed starving children. And uh, we started asking the question why do we need to drive all the way up to Wheaton, Illinois? Uh, to help people, and uh, why limit it to the youth group? And so for the next seven days, um, we will be hosting uh, dinners for refugee families, packing toiletries and sack lunches uh, for those in need, writing support letters to our missionaries, fixing fences and shower stalls and bikes and old carpets uh, at a local shelter, sorting clothing donations for foster care families, and uh, loving on the least of these at our neighborhood retirement nursing home uh, right across the street, and I had no idea, uh, as your pastor helping plan this, what to expect uh, from this week. You know, this is the first time we're, we're trying this. People travel in July. Some of these opportunities are way downtown. It's a hike, um, but I've just been blown away by y'all's response uh, to this, this coming week. Nearly half of our congregation is signed up to serve somewhere. That's, that's nearly a hundred of you That are going to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, in the community this week, and uh, really blown away. So you can give yourselves a hand for that. Uh, Give, give, give the Lord a hand for His work um, in our midst here and moving and stirring our hearts in that way. I'm really looking forward to seeing how God wants to use this next week um, individually in your lives, collectively in the life of our church to cultivate within us a deeper desire to serve others with the love of Christ. Uh, Now that is the what and the how of Serve Week, but I want to spend the rest of this morning on the why. Why Serve Week and why serve at all? Why serve others at all? For the answer, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. So if you have your Bibles and you want to start turning there with me now, you can. Jesus is going to give us six reasons in this passage for why we serve others. Uh, And if you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. Uh, It'll be on the screen in front of you uh, so we can uh, read and follow along. If you want to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word, from Mark 10, 35 to 45, I'll read it for us. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark in this world to search and scramble and try and piece together and figure out how it is that we ought to live. That your word is very clear and that it's authoritative. Jesus, thank you for laying down your life as a servant of all to show us, to model for us how we ought to live, and more than that, to empower us, to free us to actually do it. Jesus, we pray that this morning you might set hearts free, uh, that people would not leave with uh, six steps to try and serve you more, but with freedom of heart, that you would change hearts and change lives. Um, It's only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we're able to get outside ourselves and care about others more than ourselves, to care about you more than ourselves. So I pray that you would do that this morning, do a supernatural work in the hearts of those here this morning. we'll give you the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, Reason number one that as believers, that as followers of Christ, we serve others. It's because we are not God. We are not God. In other words, we serve because if we've truly surrendered our lives to Christ, we are no longer the lords of our own lives. We have rightly recognized that Jesus is Lord, that he alone deserves to rule from the thrones of our hearts. And therefore, we serve others for the very simple reason that he is God and he tells us to. That should be all the reason that we need. Consider verses 35 to 37 of this text. Verse 35, James and John came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now let's pause right there. This is not a great start for James and John. Not a good look. If I'm, I'm not Jesus. I am not God in the flesh with all authority and power and dominion. But even with the limited domain, of authority that God has granted me in this life. I'm just envisioning how I would react if my three-year-old daughter walked up to me and said, hey daddy, I'm about to ask you for something, but before I even ask, I want you to promise that you're going to say yes, no matter what, right? Right off the bat here, James and John have already divulged that their hearts are in the wrong place, that Jesus has already at this point taught his disciples how to pray, Father, your will be done, your kingdom come. But here, James and John demand our kingdom come, our will be done in heaven as it is on earth. We want to have the same standing and status in heaven as your right-hand men. Jesus has already taught them that a disciple is not above his master. Matthew 10, but James and John here, they want the master, to conform to their will, to their plan. But before we are quick to judge them, let's turn the mirrors back on ourselves this morning. How often are we guilty of doing the same? Are my prayers, are my petitions, really more about asking that God's will be done or that God would conform his will to my own? Nevertheless, Jesus sees a teachable moment here on the horizon, and so Jesus welcomes their request in verse 36. He says, go ahead, tell me, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they say to him in verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in glory. Now, two things I want to point out about this. Number one, who are they advocating for here? Themselves. This is pure and simple. They don't have God in mind, the advancement of God's kingdom. This is not about the chance to help others if they're given positions of greater power and status. This is purely self-motivated. And number two, and maybe more interesting, and I didn't catch this until just this week. I was studying this passage more. Who who is supposed to sit beside Jesus in glory? We said it in our confession that Scott uh, read for us this morning. At whose right hand is Jesus going to sit for all of eternity? The Father's, right? Matthew 22, Acts 2, Acts 7, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, four times in the book of Hebrews, 1 Peter 3, Revelation 3, all these passages all over the New Testament where we hear that Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means that essentially here the disciples are asking Jesus if they can sit on God's throne for themselves. We want to sit beside you, Jesus. We want to be God. This is Genesis 3 all over again. Adam and Eve eating the fruit, deciding that they've had quite enough of God being God. I'd like to take a turn. Thank you very much. It's Genesis 11 all over again, the Tower of Babel. Let's build a tower all the way up to heaven so that we can sit on God's throne for ourselves. But once again here, before we point fingers, we need to ask ourselves, how content am I with God being on the throne of my heart? How often do I buck and rebel against his authority over my own life? Friends, be freed this morning from the burden of trying to serve as your own God. Hear Jesus' reminder to you in Mark 10 that God's throne is far too big for you. He says, you do not know what you're asking. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to try and sit on God's throne. You really are not qualified for the job. But thank God that he is. And for those of us who have realized that he is and surrendered our lives to him in faith, really all the reason that we should need for why we serve others is because God says so. Because he's in charge, not me. And he says, serve one another over and over, and over, and over, and over again in Scripture. I lost count, trying to count this week. Hundreds, maybe thousands of times in Scripture. Serve, serve, love, give yourselves away. Pour yourselves out for one another. God is obsessed with us helping each other. Why? Well, reason number two. We serve because serving unites us with Jesus. This is another reason why serving is so good for us. Consider Jesus' response to James and John. Here in verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is Jesus referring to there? To drink the cup was an Old Testament idiom, meaning to experience the full weight of something. You might remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, Father, if it be possible, let this cup... Pass from me. In that case, he was referring to the cup of God's righteous wrath against sin, which Christ drank for our sake. But here in Mark 10, considering Jesus tells them in, in verse 39, you will drink this same cup, you will receive this same baptism, I think Jesus is referring here to their future persecution and their ultimate martyrdom for the cause of Christ. We know from Acts 12, verse 2, James was actually the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred by the sword of Herod Agrippa in the year 44 AD. His brother John was the last of the 12 to die over 50 years later. So Jesus is prophesying here that they will suffer and die for righteousness' sake just as Jesus himself would end up doing. Their suffering then would unite them with Jesus in a special way. Romans eight seventeen says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are blessed in our suffering because suffering unites us with Christ who endured the ultimate suffering for our sake on the cross. Jesus' suffering was his ultimate service to us. There is an inherent connection here between the concepts of suffering and servanthood. That's why Isaiah refers to the Messiah as the suffering servant. It is inherent in the very way Jesus Himself defines love in John fifteen, thirteen. Greater love has no one than this. What? That he laid down his life for his friend. Serving, loving, sacrifice, they go hand in hand. But here's the beautiful thing. It is in our service, in our serving of others, that we actually get more of Jesus. There's something about serving others that Jesus says identifies us with him in a unique way. Just look at how he puts it in verses 44 and 45. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Serving makes us like Jesus. You want to be more like Jesus? Serve others. What else defined Jesus's life and death and resurrection more than service? He came, he said, to serve, to give his life in service to us. And so insofar... As we, in response, pour out our lives for others, we identify with Christ in his suffering, in his selfless service. It's a reason to serve. Reason number three to serve it's because serving humbles us. <clears throat> Verses 39 and 40. How does Jesus reply to James and John's absurd request here? He says, listen, you don't know what you're asking for. In fact, Jesus says, I don't even have the authority to grant your request, even if I wanted to. There are indeed assigned seats in heaven, but the seating chart is mapped out by God the Father alone. So two things to note on this. Number one, James and John clearly needed to be knocked down a few rungs. They needed to be put in their place. How do they respond to Jesus when he asked, can you... Drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They say, we can. We know the cup that Jesus drank. And we know, hopefully, we would answer that question, no, Jesus, I can't. You have to drink the cup for my sake. But not James and John. So they needed to be put in their place. Jesus does them a favor and humbles them. Says, you don't know what you're talking about. But number two... Notice here how Jesus models true humility for them in his response. He says, it's not mine to grant. Jesus models humility and perfect submission to the Father's authority and will at every turn in his life. Remember the rest of his prayer in the garden. He says, let this cup pass from me, but what? Not my will, but your will be done humble obedience, and following the Father's will. We hear in Philippians 2, 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point even of death, obedient to his Father, to the first person of the Trinity, Christ's perfect submission to God the Father as God the Son on display in Mark 10. And so what's the takeaway for us? I think there's a recurring theme running through all six of these reasons we're studying, and that is that we are inherently self centered people. We are born to look out for number one, us. That is the very essence of sin, original sin. When we talk about being saved from sin, we're really talking about being saved from ourselves, from our own self serving natures. Putting someone else's needs above our own goes against everything that is natural in us, in our flesh. And so God repeats this command to serve others time and time again in Scripture because it is his best tool for jolting us out of that kind of self-preoccupation. Serving others not only helps them, it helps me. It helps put me in my place, my rightful place, as not the center of the universe. In fact, serving puts me... At best, in third place. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You remember how he responds in Matthew 22. He, he, he could have just given commandment number one, the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and list number two as well. God didn't ask for what are the two greatest commandments. He asked for what's the greatest. Why does Jesus go on to say, love your neighbor as yourself? I think it's because loving and serving and prioritizing others means that we are at best, number three, and that keeps some critical distance between us and first place. It's sort of a buffer that makes it harder for us to try and retake, usurp God's throne from him. The second commandment helps protect the first commandment. I thought I was a pretty selfless, servant-hearted, humble person until I got married and discovered that sharing a life with another human in such close proximity will shine a blinding floodlight on your self-centeredness. So after a few years of marriage, I thought, okay, now I'm pretty selfless. And then we had a child. And the whole playbook on humility gets thrown out the window. Sure, I served others on my terms when it was convenient for me. But why do you think God specifically designed newborns to sleep no more than three or four hours at a time? What an amazing instrument of personal sanctification a newborn is. There is nothing about cleaning diarrhea off every wall of the nursery at 3 in the morning that is convenient for me, that is not serving on my terms. I still remember that, looking around, like, God, your word promises you will not give us more than we can handle. I called Polly into the room. I'm like, babe, I think we just got to (laughs) move. Talk about being humbled through serving. That's humility, humiliation. But that is good. That is good for us. It's really good for us because serving doesn't just help someone else. It helps us by reminding us that God is first, that others are second, and that I'm third. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Humility. Reason number four to serve is it unifies us with others. Read verse 41. Why are the other ten disciples indignant here at James and John? Do you think it was righteous indignation that James and John made such a ridiculous request or fear that they didn't ask at first? They're just upset that James and John beat them to it. The fact that Jesus felt the need to call them all in and have a heart-to-heart in verses 42 to 45 is evidence that they were ticked off because they wanted the best seats in heaven for themselves. They didn't want to get stuck in the nosebleeds with James and John right down front. But serving levels the playing field. Listen to how Jesus rebukes and corrects them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is Worldly Leadership 101. Promotion equals power over. That's every business's hierarchical flowchart. You answer to and you work for your boss. He works for his boss, who works for all the way up to the CEO of the company, who works for and reports to and answers to and serves the board, right? Leadership is authority over, but don't miss miss Jesus' subtle jab here, which I think is, Jesus kind of saucy. He says, they're considered rulers. He doesn't even acknowledge them as leaders, not even bad leaders. He says they're considered rulers by people who don't know what real leadership is. And then he explains what leadership is in God's kingdom. It's upside down. The first should be last. The last should be first. He takes the world's rat race to climb the corporate ladder and flips it on its head. It says it's a race to the bottom. Who can be servant of all? Competition for last place. And spoiler alert, Jesus wins the race. He gave his life as a ransom to cancel our eternal debt of sin. Congratulations, he is the biggest loser. And the more we lose our lives for his sake by giving them away in service to others, the more that we find that actually unifies us with others in a way that nothing else can. Serving others not only identifies us with Christ in his suffering, the greatest servant of all, it also identifies us with those that we serve as well in my opening article in the church newsletter uh, this past week, which if you don't get that, by the way, give us your contact info today, and we'll make sure we get you on the email blast. I mentioned serving um, at Agua Viva Children's Orphanage in Guatemala when I was in high school. There's something special and unexplainable and profound that happens when you live with people for two or three weeks. You take the same cold showers they take and you eat the same food at the same dinner table, regardless of what it's going to do to your gringo stomach, and then you wipe with the same disintegrating toilet paper they use, and you work with the same dull machetes to clear brush for their new soccer field, and you sing the same hymns in alternating verses of Spanish and English, there's something special that happens in that experience that brings you together with people that you serve alongside that can't happen in any other way. You don't learn that in the classroom. You you can't achieve that kind of unification, solidarity with people from a topical Bible study, from a political rally, from an activist march, from a Facebook group. That kind of real care and concern for the plight of another human's life only happens from serving, from actually rolling up your sleeves and walking a mile in their shoes. That is why we do things like Serve Week we go to Bridge of Hope, and we go to Valley Park Foster Closet, can't we just write them a check? I mean, let's get real. Isn't that the biggest need here? Isn't that our greatest you know, possibility for contribution? Financial? Maybe. But that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is to have our hearts changed by spending two hours, one day a week, going and experiencing life through someone else's eyes so that God can grow in us a greater sense of gratitude, of compassion, of Christ-like service, selflessness, of true Christian love. 1 John 3 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for others. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Serving opens our hearts to others because it opens our eyes to get a glimpse of the world the way that they see it. It unifies us with them. Reason number five to serve. Serving is our countercultural witness. Serving is a countercultural witness to the world. Think with me again about the dichotomy that Jesus draws here in verses 42 through 44 between the world's idea of leadership and his own. Show of hands, how many of y'all have people at work who report to you? This is not like a bragging thing. I'm just curious. Okay, so about half of us. Okay, you want to obey Jesus's command to be a witness to people in your life this week, walk in tomorrow morning and ask the people who report to you, how can I better serve you as a boss? That is a countercultural witness. How many parents in the room? On the ride home today, ask your kids, How can I better serve you as a parent? You gotta be careful with that one, because we could get right back to Ellery's whole, you know, unlimited ice cream request or whatever. But seriously, that is a countercultural witness in our world. That is probably not a question that many non-Christian bosses are asking their employees this week. How can I serve you? There's a reason that the vast majority of the food pantries and clothing banks and homeless shelters and formerly the hospitals and the schools, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, were all started as Christian ministries because the world doesn't stand to gain anything from selflessly serving others. You only sacrifice for others in this world if you know there's another world coming. Giving and serving in ways, at times, in places to people that don't make sense from a worldly perspective puts unbelievers in the very uncomfortable but very important position of having to answer both for their own self centered original sin that they haven't been saved from yet tendencies and ways, as well as the hope and the countercultural selflessness that is in us by virtue of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. They ask, what is it in her that makes her serve those people like that? That doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. Matthew five sixteen, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's your witness. And lastly, number six, we serve others most importantly because we have been so incredibly, amazingly served by Christ. Verse 45, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and gave his ransom, his life is a ransom for many. 1 John four nineteen. We love, why? Because he first loved us. But remember, love is just another word for service, for sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this. So John could have just as easily written here, we serve because he first served us. We lay down our lives for others because he first did that for us. And brothers and sisters, if our serving does not come from hearts that have been radically transformed and moved by the power of the gospel and the love of Jesus by his initiating and inspiring and life-changing service to us in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then you can take all the other five reasons we've studied, you can throw them out the window. If you serve God because he's God and he says to, you'll just be following orders. It will be obligatory. If you serve to be united with Jesus, but you miss the weight of what he did for you first, then you'll end up with a Messiah complex and you'll try and take Jesus's place for yourself. If you serve to grow in humility, to grow in solidarity, to grow in evangelism, all these things without the antecedent love and service of Jesus for you, then all the serving in the world will ultimately only lead you to a path of another form of workspace righteousness. You will inevitably end up trying to earn your standing before God based on your exceptional humility, your compassionate solidarity, your faithful witness. Friends, if you've heard nothing else this morning, please hear this. No amount of your working hard to please God by serving others, by being a good person, none of it will ever be enough to earn God's favor hear the good news this morning. God is a much better father than that. You don't have to earn his love. I don't know what kind of father you had. That's not the kind of father God is. He doesn't say, you serve me and then we'll talk about me serving you. Then we'll talk about me letting you into heaven. No, our God says, because, precisely because, you could not serve me. I decided to serve you instead by sending my son, my only son, as a payment for your sins to bring you back in a relationship with me. And friends, the danger to you and me this morning is that if we have not been first served by God in that all-important, eternal, life-changing way by God's suffering servant, Jesus, then the danger is that we leave here this morning with five more reasons to try harder to do more, to please God better, to try and earn your salvation. And those, all the reasons in the world will ultimately crush you under the weight of the responsibility of caring about others perfectly. You can't do it. But thank God Jesus can, and He did for your sake, for my sake. Amen. Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Then we get those great verses that we all love to memorize. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. But get this. It was the last verse that we sometimes leave off. Why does God save us? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, we have been saved to serve. We're saved to serve. God prepared the good works that you and I are going to do this week at Bridge of Hope and He prepared them before the beginning of time. I just printed off the spreadsheets. God prepared it. I didn't organize serve week. God did. He created us for good works that we might make his glory known to all nations. Matthew 5, let your light shine before others. So let's go out and do it this week. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.